Nevada College. It's been pretty well documented that D&D's story elements are strung together from a whole host of sword and sorcery, epic fantasy, science fiction, horror, and folklore stories. It's a little less documented how much D&D assimilated game rules over the years. Concepts like adding a bonus to a die versus a difficulty class, point by, story path backgrounds, companion characters, and even advantage were distilled from the prevalent games being played at the time various editions were being designed. Resistance is futile. Wait a minute. That's a Star Trek reference, and I'm from the 1920s. That's a bit of a time paradox there, wouldn't you think? Anyways, we'll roll with it. We will add your narrative and procedural distinctiveness to our own. Resistance is futile. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time, and while we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D lets us take those games into a dark alley and take their stuff. Rifle them for rules like loose change. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they put me in charge of everything. <laughs> uh, don't blame me. And I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. So today, after we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about borrowing elements from other RPGs. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let's get to that campaign journal. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So I'm not running anything right now. Depths of Zendrick is on hiatus. Um, the kids game hasn't started back up again because, man, did high school seniors have busy social <laughs> lives. Yeah. And my potential once a month uh, in-person Sunday game has not started yet, and I actually may have shifted gears and decided to run Savage Supers. So <laughs> it, it may not it may not ever make an appearance here, but there you go. But I am still playing in three different D&D games. Uh, <laughs> one of them is Jared's game. He's going to talk about that later, so I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> I am playing Selena, my Battlemaster fighter in my buddy Scott's Undermountain campaign. Uh, we are currently on the swamp level, which has been interesting because we have a party member who is a grung, and his backstory is that this was where he grew up. Now, you need to understand that <laughs> Tad, that's not his actual name. It's just what everyone in-game has started <laughs> calling him because we can't properly say his real name. Uh, I would wreck my throat if I tried. But he is a fantastically ridiculous character. His theme is that he is a grung wrestler, but this means at 10th level, he is a mix of monk, sorcerer, warlock, bard, and fighter. Yes. <laughs> Five different classes. Now, he is not necessarily the most effective character, but he always has something interesting to do in the game. And he's actually had a pretty fun character arc because he initially came into the group wanting to prove himself by wrestling everything. But <laughs> by hanging out with the rest of the group, he has realized that is not always the most effective. And now he spends his time being a little bit more of a utility character 
And one of his favorite things to do is to turn my character, Selena, into a big frog, which is <laughs> what he calls enlarge person. <laughs> now, this is mostly a dungeon call campaign. And as I said, the last time we recorded, I tend to let other folks take the lead on where we're going and what we're doing just because it works better for me and them and you know, I'm not being irritated that we're making mountains out of molehills because I'm just letting them make the mountains out of the molehills <laughs> and it's not my problem anymore. We continued exploring the swamp level uh, with the idea that we'd possibly help the Grung villagers out by dissuading the Yonti from bothering them. Now, we have we did not run into the Yonti really, uh, but along the way we fought a Nabasu who thought that he could use darkness to intimidate us but got a daylight dropped in his face. <laughs> there was a blighted, sickened tree that we obliterated with heavy magic, although it did nearly obliterate Selena and Wonder, our tabaxi rogue, because we had to get into melee range with it. <laughs> Later, there were some drow that started shooting us for some reason or another. I don't know why they started shooting at us. We did not start the fight. We rarely start the fight. But then after the drow, we ran into a pair of really nasty undead things that could raise ghouls and they would wear other creatures' skins. Um, in fact, they were wearing the skins of some Smurfniblins, so they looked like friendly underdark gnomes, but they were really just wanted to eat our faces. So, so basically, you had a men in black moment there. Yes, yes. <laughs> Now, for the other game, uh, it was originally supposed to be Tristan picking back up his City of Cowls campaign, but we had some scheduling difficulties for a variety of reasons, and then we ended up deciding to play something else for the summer, because Woody, one of our, our regulars, has a summer camp that he likes to go to every weekend. And while he does have internet access down there, it's a little much to ask him to give up every Saturday night, because he is in both games, mm -hmm. give up every Saturday night. So he is sitting out of Tristan's summer game, and we have another person joining us for this game. Uh, Tristan is going to be running Night's Dark Terror, which is a 5e revamped version of the B10 module, uh, which I believe is set in the Duchy of Karamikos in Mistara. These are words that I know we're in English, <laughs> and I've heard some of them, but I don't know what those mean. They probably mean some things to some various grognards. Tristan went into this long, rapturous speech about how he really liked a lot of the 1980s modules that came out of England for D&D mm -hmm. compared to the ones that were in the U.S., and I was nodding and being like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is in the 80s, I died a lot. A lot. <laughs> We get to play this Saturday in person. It's going to be a fantastic Memorial Day weekend game because we'll play in person. I am making Thistle, or her full name, Theonel Merdon, a half-elf Gloomstalker ranger. I'm a little mad that I misread the Gloomstalker's abilities and I only get the extra attack on the first round of combat, but uh, it'll still be fun. And, you know, I just have to I have to resign myself to the fact that I can't have the awesome, badass archery ranger that I had in third edition in fifth edition. It really is weird that there is no archery focus 
really. Like even looking through third party books, there is almost nothing that is like you're a ranger and you're good with a bow. Yeah, it's it's the the ranger is really a mess. It's it's really really a mess. I I have heard though I haven't played it, but the Gloomstalker is one of those that I hear a lot of people say good things about. Yeah, a lot of the reading I was doing on the subclasses was like the Gloomstalker's pretty solid. It's got some cool features to it. It's just for the ranger, do you use the player's handbook as written? Do you use the Unearthed Arcana they released a year after that to fix how weak sauce the ranger was? Do you use the alternatives that are in Tasha's for the ranger, which are completely different from either of the other two? And it was like, oh my goodness, what do, what do, you, what do you use? In the end, I think I'm sticking with the Unearthed Arcana version of the ranger, because really, you look at those those original player's handbook abilities, and they were just... <laughs> super super weak sauce yeah anyway uh, yeah yeah so i am relieved that we finally got to play and actually since the last time we recorded i ran for my daughter's saturday group as well as for our thursday group yay hooray so my daughter's group it started off with a five-day trip to a location of a living dungeon a creature that is literally alive and moves from place to place to keep the eye of vecna safe the group, I was actually a little bit surprised. They kind of enjoyed that whole, like, tracking the daily encounters and the tension of rolling to see if there was a, a random encounter. And they were all like, oh, my gosh, we only have 10 days of food. That means we have to go right there and right back. And they were very in to all of that tracking, you know, the the exact you know number of days that they had. They ran over an extra day, so they had to forage for food. And they were all excited because they rolled high enough to feed everyone on one foraging check. <laughs> It's really kind of neat to see people engage in some of the rules that other people have kind of gotten bored with or hand wave at certain points. This is brand new for a lot of them. Oh, yeah. And it's if you've been playing like we have for literal decades, mm -hmm. a lot of that has been there, done that and don't necessarily want to do the minutia anymore. But you tend sometimes forget. That these new players, this is all new. This oh, yeah. is all super cool and new stuff. <laughs> Give them a few years, then they'll be like, oh, God, I don't <laughs> want to track my rations. <laughs> oh. So speaking of those random encounters, they they ran into some twig blights, which the way I ran the twig blight encounter was that the twig blights were actually in the campsite that they set up, and they just didn't realize that, you know, all of these sticks that were inside the area where they set up their uh, camp were there. So the twig lights, you know, animated and attacked as soon as there was only one of them awake. There was a sturge that flew into the paladin's tent and started uh, draining her blood. Eventually, they ran into a kobold inventor and his bodyguard, which was a great encounter because they were questioning the logic of all of the uh, of all of the inventions. <laughs> My favorite one was the scorpion on a stick, where they were like, "What does this do?" He says, "Well, if you want to put a scorpion on someone and they're far away." You reach really far with the stick and put the scorpion on. <laughs> they also found out that one of the kobold inventor's inventions was basically a citronella candle to keep sturges away. So the kobold is the reason that the sturge flew into their camp the night before. <laughs> when they uh, reached the living dungeon, um, they had to figure out, um, basically they reached the hillside and then started realizing that part of the hillside kind of looked like a mouth and that when they dug underneath the rocks, it looked like there was some flesh under it. So a lot of this became um, 
figuring out like physiology puzzles, figuring out what body parts might do certain things and might help them open up other parts of the dungeon. Um, they attack the uvula to uh, to get the uh, sphincter towards the back of the throat to open up. They had to decide between going through the digestive chamber or going uh, off through the synapses. So whether acid or electricity was going to be worse and if they could figure out what was generating the electricity it was a lot of fun. Inside the dungeon, I had them run into some zombies and some mind killer whelps. Mind killer whelps are basically intellect devourers that MCDM has made for their um, Flea Mortals playtest. But to be legally distinct from intellect devourers, they are brains with a brainstem that fly. (laughs) But the zombies and the mind killer whelps were all minions because I did want them to be able to get into combat but just be able to, I hit it, it's down, let's move on to the next thing. And that also let me throw a lot more zombies at them, you know, so it felt like a zombie horde coming at them. In the end, they bargained with the dungeon, and (laughs) the dungeon gave them a book and said that it would give them the Eye of Vecna, but only if they find the Sword of Kaz, which can destroy the Eye of Vecna, and prove that they have the Sword of Kaz. So now they have this book, and they're going to go look for another artifact, This is not at all the GM trying to push them away from having the Eye of Vecna at second level. (laughs) I mean, it is probably a lot of the GM pushing them away from having the Eye of Vecna at second level. (laughs) It might be. Or at least not disappointing them by not having the Eye of Vecna at second level. Exactly. You did get through the dungeon where the Eye of Vecna is at. However, (laughs) please do this this quest first. So the Thursday group traveled to the Evermaw, which is the plane where undead souls go in the uh, Kobold Press Midgard setting. It was a miserable place. Speaking of uh, describing disgusting places, <laughs> they, they ran into the trees with the crackling flesh on it and the, uh, the black leaves with uh, hair on them. When they got to the Evermaw, they needed to get a warrior who was passed over for being taken to Valhalla by Lady Iyer the Valkyrie, to say that he forgave her. So they traveled through this unpleasant wasteland, they climbed up a uh, cliffside, and they fought his Firsterjarn, which I am probably mispronouncing, but it's still fun to say. The Firsterjarn are kind of like um, the equivalent of people chosen for Valhalla, except that they are damned to serve those that are bringing about Ragnarok. Our warrior said that he would forgive her, as long as they could end his uh, his endless torment. So they were going to drop him into the void, which is, you know, also known as Ganunga Gap. I just, I'm, I'm loving throwing out these Norse terms here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so basically he just wanted to cease existing. They weren't really sure he would cease to exist if they threw him into the void, but that's what he asked. So they did it. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't <laughs> argue with him too much. He wanted us to escort him to the void where he could basically <laughs> yeet himself into nothingness. Now, he may just be floating in nothingness, still conscious of his own existence, <laughs> but we gave him what he wanted and we got the signed piece of paper. So we're good. Everybody got a little bit chewed up in the Evermaw between the uh, the undead sentinel, which is like a giant that that with a giant scythe that, you know, reaps people. And all of the Fjörstriarans, people were a little banged up, so they retreated back to Klangadesh and found a nice hotel 
on the plane of commerce and relax there before they met, went to the next location, which is the 11 hells to get their paperwork notarized by a devil that is also a lawyer. And when they reached um, the 11 hells, they are in the hell of ignorance. So they are slowly having to make intelligence saves in order to resist losing different skills or proficiencies that they have. And as long as they get out before they lose all of themselves, they can rest and get all of those things back. Yeah, and we are not an intelligence-heavy party. <laughs> a lot of instinctual uh, decision-making that goes on. <laughs> yes. I believe Marin has the highest. Yes. But the rest of us are 10 or less. Your cyanite is also like your best arcanist uh, as far as arcane skill to learn weird yep. magic facts. <laughs> the barrister, the devil that is going to notarize the paperwork, has a job for the party to do, which is to clear out a library of some rat demons, and that's where we left our session that time around. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Today, we thought we'd talk about other RPGs and some of the bits and pieces of those games that you can repurpose for your D&D games. Now, keep in mind, some of the mechanics we're going to discuss may have shown up in other games before the one we mention, but the games we bring up are the ones that we associate most with those mechanics. And also, even though we are quite firmly polygamers, it does not mean we know every single game out there. <laughs> it, there there's probably plenty of other mechanics from plenty of other games that we're not even going to touch that you can pull in your D&D game however you want. <laughs> but, you know, there you go. We're going to talk about it. So, Jared... Tell us about a game that has a mechanic you've stolen. All right. I was trying to keep most of mine as not other versions of D&D or, you know, 5e derivative things. But I think 13th Age is different enough that I'm going to throw that on this list and start with that. Because one of the things that I really like from 13th Age was montage travel. And that is basically you want a trip to feel like something happened between point A to point B. But... Unlike my Saturday game, people aren't as excited about, you know, rolling for <laughs> random encounters every single day and tracking all of their rations. So to make that trip feel eventful, what montage travel is, is you start with one of the players, you ask them one thing that you ran into during your trip that was an impediment. And after they tell you that, the next person tells you how they resolved that as a group and then comes up with another impediment for the next player to resolve and then come up with another uh, obstacle that happened during the trip. And by the time you make it through all of your players, you have basically come up with this series of events that happened while you traveled from point A to point B. That's, that's pretty cool. I did something. It was obviously not stolen from 13th Age because it was from before 13th Age came out, but it was the same concept mm -hmm. for my previous Eberron game. We had basically spent a large portion of the campaign traveling from Corvair to Argonessen to the center of the Dragon Continent to basically find an artifact. And I did not want to spend the same amount of time playing, getting <laughs> them back from Argonessen to Sharn. So uh, we spent a session basically doing a similar thing. I used, I want to say, fairy tale cards mm -hmm. which have different plot I, it's a storytelling card game 
And we use some of those to basically inspire people to come up with what happened next. And it, everyone pretty loved it except for one player who got a little weird about things happening to his character <laughs> or his companion mount that he didn't necessarily plan on. So, but everyone else absolutely loved it. And it was one session to get them from the center of Argonesson back to Sharn. And it involved things like a, like a giant dragon turtle that gave them a ride and a kingdom of fairies that asked them to steal something, but then turned on them and betrayed them. And then an entire <laughs> uh, mechanical gnome driven warship that they ran into and had to fight off. And they had an absolute blast with it. Mm -hmm. It is, it is a good way to deal with getting from point A to point B without having to play it out in detail. Yeah, because you just you want there to be some texture to the travel. You don't just want to hand wave it and say, you traveled three months to reach this continent. You want to feel like something happened during that time frame. You know, in, in a lot of these games, a lot of these settings have pretty interesting locations. Mm -hmm. And you want to have the opportunity to explain what those locations are like and how they're different from where the, the characters are normally from. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that if you just redline it. Yeah. There are definitely times where redlining is the correct answer for a game, but there's other times where you want to kind of give a little more flavor and make the journey seem like it was actually something. And what's interesting too is when you bring up, you know, the the red line like from uh Indiana Jones, part of that is because when Indy was traveling, it was usually like a boat or a plane and the implication was there wasn't anything going on as he was traveling from New York over to Cairo or whatever. This was the the quiet part of the trip. Yeah. All right, Ange, what is what is a game you have burgled from? So I want to talk about Knight's Black Agents or Gumshoe in general. Um, and this is more of a philosophy behind that game system mm -hmm. um, that I think can be incorporated into pretty much anything you're running. The general gist of Gumshoe and Knight's Black Agents, which I think is the most well-known iteration of the, the core system, is that you do not keep the clues from your players. The players always get the clues. What they roll for is how much they get out of the clue. Um, in Knight's Black Agents, the players get the clue, period. But if they have an investigative ability that is relevant to that clue, they can get more information out of it. And you can treat D&D the same way, whereas, like, you give them the clue. You find this piece of thing on the ground that tells you what happened here before. You know, maybe it's a clue to who murdered the person you need to find, you know, their killer. Well, now I want to roll, you know, history, or I want to roll, you know, persuasion, or I want to roll something that's going to give me more information. And like, that's when you can basically give the players a reward for rolling well, but they still need that core clue to keep the game moving forward. You never hide your adventure behind a locked door. The players might not open. You never hide your mystery behind a clue. The players might not get. Definitely. And I would actually say if you are interested in checking out what gumshoe looks like, and you are the type of person that prefers fantasy role-playing, Swords of the Serpentine 
is actually a gumshoe game that is focused on living in a city like Lankmar or something of that nature and being, you know, fantasy adventurers that are, you know, exploring mysteries and getting into sword and sorcery shenanigans. I have some issues with running gumshoe long term. I have run both Knights Black Agents and Bubble Gumshoe, mm-hmm. uh, which is their kids on bike solving mysteries version of gumshoe. And I have enjoyed both, but there are times as a GM where I run into something where I'm like, no, there's no good mechanic for what the player <laughs> is wanting to do. And I get a little stuck. But I find the philosophy behind the game absolutely pitch perfect, and I pretty much use it whenever possible. Um, what's interesting to me, and I find this with a lot of games, is the earlier games like uh, Trail of Cthulhu feel a little bit more rigid in how they tell you you are supposed to use the rules. And if you compare that to the looser way they explain how to use the rules in Swords of the Serpentine, it's one of those things that I think over time people realize that you can use these tools for something a little bit broader and more flexible. And they have run into a few of those places where it's like, if I do this exactly by the rules, then no, you can't do that. That's not a thing we do in this game. This may very much be me having not fully understood the rules but like one of the issues I ran into with Knights Black Agents is all of the social abilities are investigative abilities, which mm-hmm. means they are you spend it, you get the clue. They're not active abilities. They're not I am trying to make this guy let us pass. I am trying to mm-hmm. distract this person by doing this thing. Um and that's where I got stuck the last time I was running. I had a player who had a perfectly valid plan of trying to distract the bad guy and draw their attention so other people could sneak by them. And I'm like looking at it and there were none of their general skills, which are the abilities you roll, Mm -hmm. that really fit what he was trying to do. But he had all the social skills and I'm just like, I don't know how to adjudicate this. But when it comes to actual mysteries, it's it's spot on. What's interesting is uh, in Swords of the Serpentine, which... I know you're probably not going to pull this in because you do not have the same economies that you have in D and D. But one of the things that was interesting in there is, you know, for that situation, if you wanted to infiltrate a place and one person wanted to take point to talk their way past someone, the G it tells you to set a number of points to spend. And everyone tells you what you're doing to contribute a point until you reach that point total. And they actually pull off the plan. No, that is pretty cool. Okay, you give us another game system that you've stolen something from. All right, let's go with something that is definitely not fantasy and definitely not D&D related. I'm going to talk about Sentinel Comics RPG. This is the RPG that is based on the card game that you may have heard of, and specifically the mechanics that I wanted to talk about that I really like in the game are they have um, the way that scenes are structured is very specific to the game where there are only a certain number of rounds that will happen before the scene is over. And if the scene ends before, you know, something is resolved, for example, if you don't defeat the villain, by the time you reach the end of that scene track, the villain gets away. There's, there's no saying we're going to keep fighting until we defeat this guy. It is, you have, you know, this many rounds to do this. And by the end of this, they're gone. And on top of that, there are like scene objectives. So you will add in things like, you know, there is someone dangling out of window and there is a bomb about to go off. 
And so people will have to spend certain, uh, certain rounds going to try and address those things, which means you have to start deciding what you value most. And it's really, it's really good for a superhero game because it does reinforce that idea that beating up the supervillain is not more important than letting the uh, people in the apartment building, you know, burn to death. Oh yeah. And and you can easily translate these concepts into a D and D encounter. If you're in the city and you've got some bad guys fighting you, well, oh no, they set that building on fire that has people inside of it. What do you do? Do you keep fighting the bad guys or do you try and save the people that are inside the burning building? Or if you're in a dungeon and you've found some evil temple where a cultist is trying to summon a big bad thing, yeah, you've got all the people to fight, but if you let that person keep doing their thing while you're you're fighting... They're going to summon the big bad thing anyway, and then you've got an even bigger fight on your hand. And okay, maybe that's what you want, but I think you would be better stopping them before they summon the big bad thing. Yeah, and actually, I I did this in our Thursday night game. Uh, Remember when you ran into the cultist that summoned the water elemental and there were a bunch of um, there were a bunch of people on the street that were in danger. And there was also a uh, member of the city government that was specifically being targeted. Yeah. So it was a matter of. Keeping that person alive, you know, telling everyone else to get off the streets and dealing with the cultist and the elemental and the cultist got away. You still got to fight the elemental, but the the cultist did manage to get away in that. And I, I liked how that scene played out because, you know, it was kind of using these same principles. I'd say look at other games to see how they handle encounters because it might freshen up what you're doing in D&D. Sometimes the regular... Roll initiative. Okay, we fight until everything else is dead. Then we stop and he like that can get a little tired. Yeah, and, and I think just in general, having other objectives besides just defeating the thing that's in front of you is something that will make a, a an encounter more lively to begin with. You want to mix it up because sometimes you really do just want to punch evil oh, yeah. in the face. But if that's all you ever do, make it a little more interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ange, what's another game that you have absconded with its essence. So I want to talk about the concept of fail forward. Uh, And this is probably a little bit related to what I was saying with Gumshoe, where you never hide, you never lock something behind an, you know, a, an unsurmountable roadblock. Mm -hmm. And what fail forward does, and this comes from a lot of different systems. There's a bunch of power by the apocalypse that use it. The first game I ran that used it, extensively and i don't even know if fail forward is quite the right term for it but the doctor who role-playing game Mm -hmm. what they had was a sliding scale of success you had your target number and if you got an you know like so many above it like you got six above your target number that is a spectacular success you just you know you and the player describe how amazingly awesome they are at doing the thing they're doing um if they get like Within two or three, you know, like one or two of their, it's 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 a success. Mm-hmm. But like the higher, the more they get, the more like you want to give them an advantage. Success with an advantage, you get to do something else later on. But then the the same is true going under the target number. You get it just a little bit below the target number. Okay, you don't fail. You don't fail, but you don't do it the way you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Like maybe. You know, you get the door, you get the door unlocked, but you've alerted some guards that something is going on. Mm -hmm. They succeed at what they're trying to do, 
but it's not as wonderful as they wanted it to be. This is a skill GMs can work on and develop, where you figure out what those little twists are to make it good or bad. Um, Genesis also has this with their, their dice system, where it's a, you know, success with complications, or like the one I loved was a failure with five advantages. <laughs> Like, we looked at that dice roll, and the GM was just like, <sighs> what was happening is my my character, my wannabe Jedi, was sneaking through some air ducts to try and listen in on a secret meeting between some bad guys. And um, I failed that sneak roll, because I got the failure, but then I had four advantages. So what we decided happened is that the air duct couldn't actually hold her weight, so it broke free and clattered down to the ground, but the place it clattered down to the ground rolled her into a location that meant she had cover and was a good defensible <laughs> location for when the blasters started firing. I like that. These types of mechanics, and there's a lot of games that have them. Powered by the Apocalypse has the success at a cost, that seven to nine range on the dice, where you, you do what you wanted, but there's a complication. This type of thing can be great to work into any game you're running because you want to have some flexibility there to keep the story of the game moving forward, but still honor the dice for what they're giving to you to help create that story. There's nothing more frustrating than just it being a binary, a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. I mean, if my target number is 12 and I roll a 13... Yay, I succeeded. But if my target number is 12 and I roll an 11, ooh, I failed. It's like, that's frustrating. So it's like, it's kind of fun to be able to reward those really spectacular rolls. Also make fun of the really <laughs> abysmal rolls. But. What's interesting, too, is that this is not even entirely alien to 5e because there is an optional rule in the DMG that if you fail by one or two, if you use this optional rule, it is not a standard rule, but if you use this optional rule and you fail by one or two, you and the GM can come up with, you know, that a setback that happens uh, still allowing you to be successful in what you just did. So, I mean, that's something that even kind of worked into the minds of some of the people designing the game. Uh, and also it's, it's good to keep that sort of thing in mind too, because there are times when your PCs really are supposed to be good at things and a D20 is really swingy, and you kind of don't want to put somebody in a position where they are literally like plus eight at deception, and because they've rolled a one, a two, and a three, you know, all night, they actually seem like they're a bad liar. It's like, no, the character is not a bad liar. There has to be something that is complicating things, and that's what you should think about is, in those cases, did they fail or did it create a complication? Right. This is not necessarily a game-specific mechanic, but just a, a general philosophy that I have in running games. Respect the competency of the characters. Yeah. If the character is supposed to be good at a thing, do your best as a GM to reinforce that that character is good at that thing. Yeah. You know, this is sometimes just calling out that, you know, like the person with the high charisma and the good persuasion score is just generally really charming and good with people and the npcs respond well to them sometimes be nice and realize that the face of your party can't roll below say a 12 so you make something dc 10 on purpose because you know they should just be able to 
walk up to someone and do it. And maybe someone else in the party will be really silly and try and <laughs> talk to this person instead of the face. And that's a whole other thing. I love when somebody has a high intelligence and has like history. Just give them yeah. the history. Don't make them roll for it. I mean, it is kind of fun when you have everyone roll for some sort of mm -hmm. knowledge check and the barbarian yes. <laughs> gets a 19 on the roll. So the result is a 20. And I mean, uh, you know, a 20 on the roll. So the result is a 19. And like everyone is like, how the heck did you know that? I mean, that's a little bit off topic, but. I have had DMs that frame like you failing a test as you being incompetent. And it's like, I don't like that because what it's really supposed to mean is that if you are doing something under pressure, things are going wrong and not helping you be at your best. It's not a matter of your character is incompetent. And if you do that too often to a character, you undermine someone's idea of what they wanted to play in the first place. Right. If somebody has, you know, early game, if somebody has a plus four or better on a skill, that is a character that is professionally good at that skill. Yeah. Acknowledge that as the GM. Mm -hmm. So what's another mechanic you've pulled in? I think one of the other things that I would like to talk about is I'm going to say fate in aspects, but there have been so many other games that have started playing with that concept of aspects. Um, it's actually something that comes up a lot, like in uh, Modiphius's 2D20 system. You know, that's a big, you know, big thing in a lot of uh, a lot of those games. But basically, when you have something in the scene and you want to describe it and you want it to have weight, it's not just a description. It is a shiny chandelier. So you want it to call out as this is a thing that is important in this room. You really want to swing from the chandelier. And this is another one of those cases that's kind of interesting because in the um, Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron, which is a thing they released on the DMs Guild before they came out with the actual official book, there actually was a section talking about using aspect-like mechanics. And what it was saying was the first person, you know, if you put, say, three aspects in a scene, the first person that works the description of that aspect into what they're doing gets an advantage on what they're doing. So it's really easy to work aspects into, you know, into what you're doing there. You don't have fate points like you do in fate, you know, where you're, you know, spending those to be able to work these things in. But even something like that, just saying the first person that can, you know, that can describe this, you're going to get advantage because you saw the tactical use of that chandelier and you decided to swing on it. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> And it works in the other direction too. Like it's something that's good for evolving play. For example, you know, let's say a fire started. Let's say somebody throws a fireball into a flammable area that didn't think about it. And now you have, you know, this raging fire as an aspect. You can also use that as an excuse to say, this is a DC 15 to do this thing, but now it's with disadvantage because the room's on fire. <laughs> So in a lot of ways, it's a shorthand to remind you that something is narratively important. You know, if you're playing in person, they're very easy to just put out on a table with a post-it note. If you're playing online, you know, you'll have to figure out an alternative that works for whatever VTT you're using. But it's still not that hard to set those things up. And conceptually, there's not a big difference between aspects and saying that people get half cover from standing behind this thing yeah. because that's essentially, you know, it's kind of what you're saying. Narratively, this thing is important. And if you stand next to it, your armor class is better. 
<laughs> so it doesn't really go against the concept of D&D either. Okay, Ange, what's another game? So I'm going to talk about a thing that I have not done, but I have been very tempted to do, and I do know other people in my gaming circle who have done this. Mutants and Masterminds, which is a superhero D20 game built off of the original 3.0 game, has something called Hero Points. And they basically work a little bit like an inspiration where you get to re-roll your die. The thing about hero points, though, is that the lowest you can get is an 11. Yep. Because what happens is you roll that d20, and if you get 10 or less, you add 10 to it. So you roll an 8 you get an 18, which usually is going to let you succeed at whatever thing you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I just love this mechanic because if a player is resorting to using a resource to re-roll, they generally really, really want to make that roll. Mm -hmm. And it is so frustrating to spend your inspiration, and yes, I know, technically, as written, inspiration is something you're supposed to declare you use before you make the <laughs> roll, but I don't know a single damn GM who does it that way. <laughs> don't come at me. So there is nothing more frustrating than spending your inspiration to re-roll that two, and you get a four. Mm -hmm. So it probably does power up the game a little bit more, but if you treat that inspiration like a hero point where the lowest they can get is an 11 because if they roll a one again okay you add 10 it's now an 11 add your modifier to it yep did you succeed did you not you know it's it's just one of those things that can just make the use of the inspiration points a little more fun a little more like action oriented again some people say oh that would overpower the game but i don't think so no, and the other thing that interesting is that people oftentimes have like uh, analysis paralysis when it's a resource and it's like, I have inspiration. Mm -hmm. Should I use it? And when you do what you're saying with hero points, you know, if you roll a you know lower than a 10, that it's worth it to spend it because you're going to get a higher result. You are going to, you know. So it makes it a little bit easier to make that decision. Well, I rolled an eight. I know I'm going to spend it. You know, yeah. it's not a, I rolled an eight. Oh, now I rolled a three. Great. It's just one of those things that, that can help make the game feel just a little more, give the players a little more agency mm -hmm. with that. I really, really wanted to succeed at this thing. Like you were saying, I mean, it does make it a little bit more likely that you're going to succeed, but it does not. The thing that bothers me more in, in fifth edition isn't, making the d20 more reliable it's breaking the curve fifth edition dnd does not expect you to get more than say a 25 very often so anything that starts pushing beyond that i shouldn't say 25 but you know what i'm saying there's an yeah. upper range in bounded accuracy that you are not likely to hit so when you start adding too many pluses to that like what happens when you give people expertise a lot you start changing what the ceiling of your roles are and I find that making roles more reliable isn't the problem. Yeah. Okay, you give us another game that has something you've stolen. Since you brought up using a you know another mechanic for representing inspiration, I'm going to throw this out here. 
if you take destiny points from the Star Wars Genesis games, and for anyone that doesn't know, destiny points, you start off with a certain number of points that are either light side or dark side. And whenever the um, player decides to use one, they flip it over to the dark side and then they get a bonus on their roll. You could use that same mechanic in D&D very easily because in that case, what you would do is you have your, your number set out there, probably one per player. When they flip over those things to get advantage on a roll, for example, or other things you can do with uh, destiny points is like suggest that something exists in the scene that hasn't been established already or to remember that you have some cheap gear that would be useful right now. But as soon as you flip that, now it's a dark side point and the GM could flip that and give their characters advantage or I would even say maybe let them recharge maybe an ability or something if they have, say, I don't know, breath weapon that they really want to use again. <laughs> um, so I think that is a mechanic that you could easily pull over into D&D 5e as kind of another way to work around what you want to do with inspiration. And honestly, if somebody does something that you want to reward them with, you flip one of your dark side points over to a light side and say, you know, this was so good that I am just going to go ahead and flip this back over to a light side point. Cortex does. I'm not sure the mechanics in Cortex would easily translate to D&D because they are very dependent upon the dice that you are rolling. But Cortex has a similar concept in that sometimes the dice you roll end up going to the GM. Mm hmm. For them to roll later against you. Yeah, and this is something um, you're even kind of seeing some versions of 5e start to play with this idea of a GM currency because that was something that they that Kobold Press has introduced uh, in their playtest for monsters with the uh, with the doom points. It might be something fun to play with. I can't say that I have actually done this, but I have also run Star Wars Genesis quite a bit, so it seems like it might be something fun to try in a different system. Again, it'd be very easy to do at a physical table where you have the points in front of you and you can flip them. Uh, but in the VTT, you would just have to find a good way to represent them, which isn't insurmountable. No. It could be done, but you do have to figure out how to represent it. In person, I have gotten the Othello pieces that are like white on one side and black on the other. And that's what I've used for Destiny points <laughs> for Star Wars games. So, I believe that the starter sets for the the Star Wars games all had little cardboard tokens that you'd pop out of a little framework that have white on one side, dark on the other. All right, and you got another game you're thinking of? So I want to, you put on our list fantasy age relationships, and mm -hmm. I don't remember what this is, but I want to talk <laughs> about stealing relationship setups from other games. Mm -hmm. um, I first started seeing this in... Um, some of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, specifically Monster of the Week. Uh, Monster of the Week was the first game where I saw this, where when you are setting up the characters, there's a section for relationships, and you have to declare a relationship with another character in the party that they consent to. Mm -hmm. And it basically creates this dynamic between the characters that just ramps things up just a little bit. And this is something I love and I try and use in many of my campaigns, mm -hmm. you know, especially if you're starting with the players already being part of a group, 
you know, you want to do something that will kind of bind those characters together. Mm -hmm. I can remember in, I ran a short Monster of the Week campaign, and I had one player, she was playing, I believe, the Wronged, um, who had lost her wife to a demon. Actually, she had lost her wife to the axe that she wielded that had her wife's soul in it. <laughs> it was, you know, it was very emo and dramatic. Well, that's that's the wronged anyway, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The character playing the expert, they decided was her mother. And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, your mom is the one who has the library, you know, in the van that goes around that everyone has all the information. And then the expert decided that the spellcaster, who I can't remember the name of the playbook, uh, but he was her on-again, off-again friend with benefits. <laughs> Wasn't the wrong's dad. Yeah. But was just the, you know, on-again, off-again friend with benefits. And just this dynamic changed the way those players <laughs> interacted. And this is something you can bring into any game. Mm -hmm. You know, just have the players set up how they know each other, how they, you know, hang out. Like, this is the type of thing that, if you were if you were 18 years old and have an entire summer to play three or four times a week, <laughs> this is something that will develop naturally as you play. Most of us are adults with lives and mortgages and rent to pay, and we don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> so sometimes you want to just kickstart the bonds between the characters out of the gate. Yeah, I'll dovetail on this and explain specifically the relationship that have come up in some of the different uh, age games more recently basically they'll give you say three um relationship tiers at first level and you can have up to three tiers of relationship with one person or one you know one with three people or two with one person and one with one person and what that means is every adventure when something involves that character you can spend the points of those relationships as stunt points whenever you're, you know, doing something that's related to that relationship. What I was thinking that you could do with D&D &D in the same way is turn those into, say, inspiration dice. You know, you have three inspiration dice, and if you can explain how your relationship with this person that you have a three-point relationship with is important, you can spend one of those dice. You let it refresh every so often, but it's basically a mechanical representation that when that person is involved, it is more important to you, so you dig down and you have more reserves to bring up and use. I believe Knights Black Agents has something similar, but they call it a trust mechanic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is to represent that that game is about, um, you know, high level spies and agents who basically are dealing with shadowy entities and all that. Like, who do you trust in your group? And the person you have more trust with basically lets you do more with them as a benefit in mechanics. So what's another thing to talk about here? I think I'm going to go high concept and talk about the between the between is a, a game that is in the same family of games that our editor very much likes. It is using the same system as, um, Grindlewood Bay. Um, it is a mystery system, but in this case it is a Victorian era, you know, monster hunting and tracking down conspiracies and things of that nature. But the mechanic I wanted to talk about is this thing from the between that is called the unseen. And that is UN seen as in a scene that you are in, not 
S-E-E-N. And what's interesting about this is you come up with a description of things that are going on in the setting that don't necessarily have anything to do with the players or the plot that they're dealing with, but that reveal kind of more information about the setting to give you a feel for the setting. And in between scenes, you stop and describe the next thing that happens in that other scene that's going on. So, you know, for example, you might have somebody go and visit some sideshow. And then in, you know, the next scene after, you know, your people have been investigating for a while, they find out there is something really weird going on at that sideshow. And then maybe in the third one, they get invited to a back room. And then the fourth one, you see like blood leaking out from under a door. And it's all stuff showing you that this setting has weird stuff going on all the time, not just for the player characters. And it's not even meant to necessarily be part of what they're investigating, but it is communicating things about the setting. So you're cutting away to do that unrelated scene to introduce setting elements into the, you know, the overall storyline. That could be really cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said earlier, it's like these settings that we play D&D in are fascinating and rich and have a lot going on. As I mentioned, when I played the Undermountain game, we were attacked by some drow and we have no idea why they attacked us. You know, we quite easily <laughs> defeated them, killed them and moved on with our lives. And we were joking that the GM said, like, they have names and backstories <laughs> and motivations and like none of it is anything that is ever going to get to the players (laughs) ever you know it's just to entertain the gm but it this type of thing can create a wall between what the gm enjoys and what the players are experiencing and doing something like these little vignettes off camera that the play give the players a hint of what's going on you know elsewhere in the world can be really cool to help tell you a bit more about the setting Yeah, and sometimes it's just neat to, like, even if you can't think of how to work something in, there's just something about the setting that you think is kind of cool. Like, I could do a story set in Waterdeep and cut away. There's a certain court that on nights of the full moon, when people dance, they can literally float. And so, like, you know, a certain times of the month, people will specifically go to this, you know, this particular uh, tavern just so that they can wait for, you know, that phenomenon to happen. And then you'll see all these people like dancing and spinning and floating in the air. And that's a neat thing, but it's not always something that's going to come up in an adventure, but it's kind of neat to show that Waterdeep is kind of this magical place where like weird magical things happen at different points in the city. And it's just kind of this neat little wondrous thing you could work in as one of these unseen situations. Okay. And you got anything else? So I want to talk about the GM intrusion. Now, you have this listed as coming from Cypher System. Mm -hmm. And I know it comes from Cypher System, but I have a complicated (laughs) relationship with Cypher System. (laughs) I've never really gotten a hand of it, but I understand the concept of the GM intrusion is that the GM basically kind of gives the players a little bit of a reward Mm -hmm. and then intrudes with something that changes the dynamics of the situation. That complicates things. Yeah, it complicates things. And I have some friends that use this quite effectively in running Mutants and Masterminds. Mm -hmm. Now, I I love love these guys dearly, but they will run anything and everything in Mutants and Masterminds because they know how to make this system (laughs) do anything they want it to do. 
I would not do the same thing, but I will happily play in any of their games. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they'll do is they'll be like, okay, I'm giving everyone a hero point. This is what's going to happen. And he has done this to do things like in a Justice League game, we've got this battle going on. All of a sudden, these, you know, other bad guys show up and Superman goes to do a thing. And the GM is like, hold on. And he's like, he gives a hero point to Superman. He gives a hero point to me playing Wonder Woman. And he gives a hero point to the person playing Flash. And it's like, all of a sudden, these people raise guns, hit you with this powerful energy, and you find yourselves transported through time and space, and you wake up in a cell in another location. And it's like, it's this thing that is done to basically push the story forward. Mm -hmm but give the players a reward for momentarily taking their agency away from them mm-hmm. in name of helping the story. Yeah. And it's one of those things where some people don't like this because, again, they don't like losing their agency. But mm-hmm. at the same time, as a GM who has run things where I find that players will fight tooth and nail against the story, sometimes you need to do this to keep the story actually moving. You bring up a good point. Like this is, I put this as cipher system and GM intrusion, but this is also something like you said, uh, mutants and masterminds fate does this with a compel. You know, it is basically that thing where I am saying that something is going to be more complicated. So I'm going to pay you this thing basically to say, let it ride. Here you go. (laughs) Trust me. And we're going to make this more complicated now. I've seen the same thing in savage worlds. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's literally written into the system but it's the same thing, you know, everyone gets a Benny or two if the GM wants to be really mean. What One of the things that I think was neat is that in 3rd edition Mutants and Masterminds, back when I was running my DC Adventures game, in 2nd edition, you would pick like certain flaws or, you know, weaknesses or whatever, and you would get extra points for them. But in 3rd edition, you don't get extra points for having those weaknesses or those, you know, those things that complicate your life. It's just... These are the clues of things that the GM should be paying you for when they introduce it to the scene. So, for example, if you're Superman, you don't get extra points for being vulnerable to Kryptonite, but you get a hero point anytime the GM decides to say, here is Kryptonite, because it can get really cheesy when people just get cooler characters for a weakness and then that weakness never comes up. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Nope. That is a very good way to handle it, too. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, as as far as D and D games go, it's everyone gets an inspiration point. Oh yeah, you know, it's it's like some I know, like technically, you're only supposed to have one inspiration point at a time, but you can fudge this. You know, everyone gets that free reroll at some point in the future. But here's the big bad thing that happens. The other reason I thought about this in regards to Cipher System is that Monty Cook Games did do some conversions of some Numenera stuff into Five E. And they did have a conversion for the intrusion. And basically it is you give inspiration to one person and ask them who else should get inspiration. So you're not just getting, you know, one point of inspiration. You're like, you know, who else is involved in this? So, you know, you kind of uh, rope them in on that too. So, and you know, that's good. And honestly, I will say this though, if you're going to do something like an intrusion and it's going to be meaningfully complicating, you probably do want to do something else, maybe like the hero point system to make sure that that, you know, inspiration feels like something somebody wants and not just, okay, fine. I got inspiration. 
this is probably a topic for another show, but the levels of the game you're running. Mm-hmm. Are you running that heroic game where you want your players to feel like the big damn heroes? Mm-hmm. Or is this a little bit more hard scrabble where they're fighting against the forces of darkness and probably aren't going to win, but they're going to die trying? Mm-hmm. You know, what level of game are you running? I mean, I personally, I want to be the big damn hero and I want my players <laughs> to be the big damn heroes, so that's what I'm going for. Anything else? Any other any other systems you want to cover? I think the last one I'm going to throw out there is, and again, I know clocks show up in other RPGs, but probably right now it's most associated with Forging in the, in the Dark games. If you haven't heard of clocks, then here you go. Um, basically, what you do is you draw a circle and you make partitions in it. So you might have four or eight or six or 12 and however many pieces there, that's how many different uh, things you have to do in order to successfully complete something that you're working on. This is essentially breaking down, for example, skill challenges from fourth edition in a slightly different way. Instead of saying you need to get uh, three successes before five failures, instead you have this progress clock. And if you still want that feeling of you can't just keep making checks and adding to this clock, you can create a second clock and you would be doing what Forge in a Dark clock calls uh, competing clocks so that like when you make a failure or if an enemy makes a successful check, then you fill in another spot on the competing clock. And if that clock fills in before you fill in your clock, then you cannot complete your task that you're doing. I got to say, there's a lot of tension to be had with seeing that enemy clock out there on the table and the GM just filling in a segment. Yep. And you know, like, you don't know what it's for. You don't know who it's for. (laughs) You don't know what's going on. You just know that that is bad news. Mm -hmm. And that's that can do a lot to kind of like ramp up the tension at the table. And the other thing that's kind of fun with that is it can also be a measure of something where. You don't have a set point when you want people like, let's say you're doing an investigation since we've brought this up previously with other mechanics. Every time the PCs do something to advance that investigation, you could put a piece in that clock. And when it's full, it's just obvious to them, whatever they're investigating, they know the truth of the situation when that clock is full. And that's one of those things that can be helpful when your PCs aren't putting things together but they still feel like they earned the information because they still did all of the steps that filled in that clock. Yeah, that's a different topic, but it's one of those things when you're running um, when you're running mysteries, sometimes what is completely obvious to you <laughs> is not obvious to your players. Yep. This is something as GMs we need to be aware of. I know when I'm on the player side of the table and I know I'm not getting it, and the GM thinks I should be. It's like, come on, help me out here. I, I just need a little, I need a little more help here. I'm not figuring this out. And sometimes it's just a miscommunication of details. I was playing a, um, what is it? Mutant City Blues, mm-hmm. where we, the players, had fixated on a piece of information that actually turned out to not be relevant to the mystery at all. And the GM was so confused because he's like, why do you keep why do you guys keep going on about this? And we're like, 
<laughs> well, you mentioned it back there, and if this was the case, then that would explain why these three things have happened. And he was just like, no, that's not part of this at all. You know, it was just a little bit of a miscommunication. That still reminds me of um, the, the one episode of Critical Role where Matt Mercer overly, de- he described a chair as being a little bit too interesting. <laughs> And like everyone in the party swore this chair had something to do with what they were investigating at that point. Yep. Yep. The chair. (laughs) Well, it's things too. It's like the opposite of the chair. The GM thinks they've described something Mm -hmm. with enough impact that the players will pay attention to it. And then you realize the players just completely bypassed it. It didn't make any impact on them at all. And they've completely forgotten about it. And now... They're stuck because they don't know where to go next or what to do. I mean, honestly, one of the things that has struck me when you read like the old adventure modules for like first edition and there are like puzzles and riddles and things in there. And some of those just do not click with me at all. And what's interesting to me is I don't think it always sunk in to some of the early designers that a lot of the people playing this game are people that were part of this Midwestern wargaming culture, and they had a common frame of reference. Yeah. If you said certain things, they did tend to think the same way. And if you don't have that same frame of reference, these things are not going to occur to you in the same way. This goes back to my first point about don't lock the, don't hide the clues behind an un, you know, something the players might fail Mm -hmm. at. I was in a supernatural game and we were, trapped inside of a roadhouse with monsters swirling around outside trying to kill us and we needed to find this MacGuffin that was hidden somewhere in the roadhouse and we spent an hour and a half (laughs) trying to find this and I finally just looked at the GM and I'm like look (laughs) we are obviously not getting where this thing is can you please just let some of us roll some dice to find it, it turns out it was hidden in the vent of the ladies' room. And even though we had said we had searched the ladies' room, mm-hmm. because nobody had said we are searching the vent, we therefore did not find the MacGuffin, mm-hmm. which meant the plot ground to a halt. And this is nothing against the GM. He was a good guy. He'd ran some fantastic games I'd played before. It was just in this particular thing, he was like, They need to find the MacGuffin to stop the attack on the roadhouse so they can go deal with the real problem. Yeah. And he got stuck on that one thing because we did not say we were looking in the vent of the ladies room. So in conclusion, use clocks whenever you want to show progress. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we're done stealing things from other games. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be other things in the future. Oh, yeah. Especially with the number of fantasy-based games that are coming out, iterating oh, off yeah. of 5e. Oh, there's going to... Games are going to be a mishmash of a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. And we've we've already... Um, for those of you listening, we've already started talking about doing a version of the show where we just look at 5e-based games and new mechanics that they've introduced that aren't in the core game and what you can yank into your game from those. Don't know when we'll do that. But at some point we may do it, so it's on the list. (laughs) No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. 
And with that, we're going to go into downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for some things related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So the Tales from the Valiant Kickstarter is live. Uh, It went live today as of us recording this, which is probably about a week out from when this episode is going to drop. Yep. Um, so there's going to at least be three more weeks of the campaign left. Yeah, it's like 31 days, so yeah, there'll yeah, be and plenty I mean, of time. It's, it's, it's funded. It's, yeah. it's like overfunded. It's like it's triple like funded I, at this point. <laughs> yeah, when I looked at it early this afternoon, they had a goal of $100,000, and they were already at $260,000, mm-hmm. and that was like at 3 o'clock. So I'm sure by the time this episode reaches you... It's going to be more than funded, and they will have run out of stretch goals and be scrambling to figure out what else to do to keep the momentum going. But Tales from the Valiant is live on Kickstarter. There's a bunch of different options there for getting the PDFs, getting the you know the player's book in hardcover and the rest in PDFs, getting the monster book in hardcover and the rest in PDFs, <laughs> getting both in hardcover, getting all the stuff and VTTs. They've got four VTTs they're offering mm-hmm. information for. Um, I was very sad that I am not as wealthy as I want to be because they have shard in stuff mm-hmm. available and I'm like, I really, really want it, but I'm not there yet. I don't have that money <laughs> in my pocket right this moment. And in a month I'll be heading to origins and I will probably need that money in my pocket yeah. for stuff at origins. So I'm like, I need to wait on this, but I still backed it to get the hardcover books. Mm-hmm. Because even even if I am living in the digital age and I completely understand and respect this, I still am enough of a goblin that I want the shiny physical object in my hands. Also, if you get both books, you get the slipcase. I'm a sucker yeah. for slipcases. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go check out. Go check it out. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. They hit the stretch goal of having a linguist design a draconic language for them. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, this probably doesn't need our help pimping it, but it is probably a game we are going to spend a fair amount mm-hmm. of time talking about over the next year or so. Oh, yeah, definitely. So there you go. Okay, my recommendation for today is also a Kickstarter. This one's already been going for a little bit, but even by the time this episode comes out, there should be about a week or so for you to still uh, look at it and throw your money at it, which you should. It is the Kaboa Kickstarter, and it is for 5e and Pathfinder. It's a South American influence fantasy setting, and it is actually being worked on by people of color and people with cultural backgrounds from South America. As of the time that I looked at this, their next unlocked goal, because it has already funded, um, their next unlocked goal will be adding the 22nd through 24th subclasses to the book. (laughs) That's a lot of subclasses. It is a lot of subclasses. But yeah, there should be um, there should be at least a week for you to uh, back it. I believe they are actually working, you know, to tie this in with Ange's uh, recommendation. I believe they are actually working with uh, Kobold Press to provide a starter adventure as one of the um, as one of the stretch goals for you know the Tales of the Valiant game as well. But it is also it's for Five E and Pathfinder, and there is a stretch goal to convert this to the Coyote and Crow system too, which is. Kind of interesting. Ooh. Yeah, that's kind of neat. So, yeah, you should go check it out. I still need to play Coyote and Crow. It's on my shelf. I just I know. haven't 
I haven't had time to dig into it myself. Hey, and if you want to find out about it, there's a review on Gnomes Do for Coyote and Crow. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get out of here. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we want to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, you might also consider checking out our other show. The Gnomecast. Several gnomes from Gnomes Do get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. And Ange, who would throw them in the stew? Yeah. Yeah. I ask that question at the end of every episode, and they're like, Ange, it's up to you. Did we do okay or not? Are we in the stew or not? And I'm like, I don't know. I miss I miss John being in charge. I can blame it all on him. Anyway, we have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.